Now fear makes you do crazy things. Fear can interrupt your reasoning processes. It makes you not think through your positions. It makes you easy to be fooled. Fear is what's driving the polarization in the US and in Canada right now. And it's fear that people are losing the country they grew up knowing. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'd like to talk some more about polarization in North American political discourse. As we are currently approaching uh, a U.S. national election, the polarization could not be more fierce. In my recent interview uh, with Dr. Stephen Levitsky, we discussed the dangers to democracy uh, that we see in the current U.S. political landscape. And much of it um, comes from this polarization, this fact that the sides are so firmly polarized that they believe that the other side of the aisle does not have the right to govern, and they will use all tools at their disposal to impede the right of the other side to govern, and this pushes even into uh, fomenting violence. This is bad, and this is something we need to avoid, and this is one reason that I want to talk to you. This interview with Stephen Levitsky highlighted to me, at least, the, the source of some of the polarization is fear. Now, I'm sure they don't want to hear this, uh, but I did receive a lot of feedback uh, on this uh, Levitsky episode on uh, How Liberty Dies uh, from Republican voters. Uh, so the good news is they were listening to me. The bad news is that I seem to have alienated a few of them. And I get it. They were angry. It seemed a very one-sided uh, podcast. But, uh, you know, this is my opinion, and I'm willing to share it with all of you. These people have been fed a diet of misinformation from their leaders, from their media source. This is probably the first time that a source that they trusted has told them that Trump is a dangerous fascist demagogue. Now, I'm glad that they had that trust in me and they were willing to reach out and we've started a dialogue. And I think that's also what's important here. And that was my goal in all of this, is to, is to engage these people. I was questioned on agreeing with Levitsky that it was Republicans who have been responsible for the degradation of democratic norms in the U.S., now, Republican supporters suggest that it's common practice for an opposite party Senate to fail to install a president's Supreme Court nominee in an election year. And this is why they didn't give Merrick Garland a hearing back at the end of Obama's tenure. But data shows that prior to Merrick Garland, eight out of the ten presidential nominees in the same situation were confirmed by opposing Senates. One of the nominees that did not get confirmed was appointed by the president in absentia since the Senate wasn't sitting, and the other was blocked by a bipartisan filibuster due to the ethical questions surrounding the nominee's fitness uh, to be on the court. But they don't get that story. They get the story that this is normal from their leaders. This is the right to govern that parties need to grant each other to allow the democratic process to work. The Republicans seem to have adopted a no-holds-barred approach to holding power that includes gerrymandering Senate districts, suppressing the vote, and stacking the Supreme Court. 
For the U.S. system to work, each party must accede to the other party's legitimacy to govern when they are in power. Now, the Democrats are not without fault in this either. Democrats have pushed back. When the Republican Senate refused to consider any of Obama's legislation, he resorted to executive orders, and this is also pushing the envelope. So there's been a pushback, a tit-for-tat, and it's, it's, it's gotten higher and higher now, and now we're at risk of breaking the boundaries of democracy and falling into fascism, and that's why that episode was important. And it's why Levitsky's suggestion that the Democrats should take the high road and not push the boundaries of the democratic process, not use all the tools that are at their disposal to fight back. Because what you're going to do is you're going to break the process. And what we need to do is get back to the point where both parties respect the other's right to rule. I have also been challenged on my characterization of Trump's federal forces during the Black Lives Matter protests in Portland as secret police abducting political opponents in unmarked vans. Now, there's no argument that this occurred, but the response is that the BLM protesters were vandalizing federal buildings, and these violent protesters should have been arrested by the police. Now, of course, there's no argument that some undesirable elements used protests as covered to loot and vandalize. That was well known. But the majority of BLM protests across the U.S. and even in Canada have been peaceful. The whole continent came together to show that we don't support systemic inequality. And one half of the population focused instead on vandalism and looting, as though it let them off the hook for the need for systematic change as though they no longer had to think about the system that values ethnic lives differently from white lives. The question is, what focus should we put on that situation? What's the spin that your media chooses to put on that situation? Trump characterized police killings of minorities as golfers flubbing a putt. Why is vandalism of federal buildings prioritized over the situation where black lives are being lost to police? This is whataboutism at its worst, in my opinion. The majority of arrests made during these protests were misdemeanor citations. You know, what people get for not immediately dispersing when, when told to, or, or when using verbal abuse against a police officer. And this is being characterized in the right wing as arrests of vandals, uh, glossing over really the real issues at stake and the real reason behind the protests not facing the real reason behind the protests. Peaceful protest is a right at the core of the democratic process. Sending in federal agents to disrupt people peacefully protesting police violence is authoritarianism. Clearing protesters with tear gas so the president can have a photo op at a church is suppression of the people's democratic rights. So getting back to my observation from uh, Levitsky's interview um, and talking about why... The polarization is here. What is causing the polarization? Now, fear makes you do crazy things. Fear can interrupt your reasoning processes. It makes you not think through your positions. It makes you easy to be fooled. Fear drives bad decisions. Fear is what's driving the polarization in the U.S. and in Canada right now. And it's fear that people are losing the country they grew up knowing. And this is because the rural, religious, white, Republican, conservative base 
are threatened by their loss of majority status. And you can look at the, the demographics of the U.S. and Canada are changing. There's immigration uh, and different religions are coming into the country and their majority status as a white voting bloc is now uh, being eclipsed by a more cosmopolitan, uh, urban, democratic voting bloc. The U.S. political landscape is, is broken down into two parties. One of them is uh, basically Republican rural, and the other one is Democratic urban, cosmopolitan, multiracial. And I know where they're coming from. I can see the fear. I've gone through the sphere. I grew up white, rural, and religious, and it's traumatic to confront change and the loss of your past and your, your family's heritage and to see your history on the land to be replaced by outsiders with different viewpoints, people that don't share the same strongly held religious values. And this is a result of the decline of rural populations and the change of the agrarian lifestyle and the impact of technology on agriculture. We need fewer people to produce the same amount of food that we did in the past. And so people are moving to the cities to do to get service jobs rather than agrarian jobs. And this helps grow these cosmopolitan urban centers. And this is a catalyst of change. The traditional agrarian lifestyle that I grew up with is in decline. And Others in the U.S. are seeing this, and it's a source of fear. Change is a source of fear, especially because you have these others moving into your country, the country that you believe is yours. The church my family attended is now just a, a home residence. My first schoolhouse has been bulldozed to make a parking lot. My, my public school has been shut down. There's not enough people going there. My family farm and our family for almost a hundred years, was recently sold to become a gravel pit. The town I came from is, is changing. It's now swollen with immigrant farm workers and their families, um, much more so than it was when I was there. And this is a source of fear, and, I f and people feel displaced, and they feel this change as an existential angst that must be prevented. But what I have realized going through this is that some changes are good. Some changes are overdue. We don't need to be afraid of giving equal rights to people with different colored skin or different sexual preferences. Was it really better in the past? Can we make America great again? Was it great? It's pretty good now. A lot of the changes that have been made are a long time coming and have made it a better place. Many people look back with these halcyon days of youth. Your younger years are this idyllic period when you didn't have a care in the world and your parents looked after you and, and everything is looked at through rose-colored glasses. But that doesn't mean the country was better. That doesn't mean life was better. Some things were, I'll grant you that. But so many things have progressed since then. There's way less pollution I remember we would, you know, people would throw their garbage out the window of their car. The highways were coated with garbage along the side that seemed like it would be impossible to clean it all up. And it would just blow along the streets. 
And now people don't do it and it's gone. And it's amazingly so much better. It looks so much nicer. I remember driving through Detroit and seeing burned and stripped cars lying by the side of the road. I remember as a child, Lake Erie was a dead lake from industrial pollution. There were no fish. You wouldn't eat anything you caught there. It was impossible. They were so toxic. I remember not being able to breathe at home. We, we were downwind from Detroit, and the smog and the soot uh, gave me her- horrible asthma. Now, I don't know if that was the cause. I'm speculating here. But every time I, I went somewhere else, I could breathe fine. But boy, did we have beautiful sunsets. That was, that was something. Uh, the, the pink sky over Detroit at night was beautiful. I remember acid rain and dead lakes in the north. Sulfur in the air from burning so much coal, killing fish. And I remember the ozone hole. And I remember when people made fun of natives and African Americans and LGBTQ folks said horrible things about them in so-called polite company. And the world has moved on and become better in all of these ways. Our personal religious views are not the only way to interpret the universe. This is something you know you learn when you move away from home and go to university. You're exposed to other viewpoints of the world. And I found that I was prejudiced to believe that my religion was the only one that made sense and the other ones are ridiculous. All religions have ridiculous elements in them. There is not one that's better than the others, and there are thousands of them. And we can maintain this viewpoint of exceptionalism if we are closeted away and surrounded by like-minded folks and are only exposed to one source of news which caricatures other people's views. Allowing others to maintain their cultural and religious heritage, I think, creates a more diverse and interesting society. And I love the cosmopolitan nature of of urban centers, and I love learning about other cultures, and I love exotic food from other cultures as well. Fighting over primitive cultural and tribal differences is itself, I think, a primitive response to change and and to being presented with difference. If your impression of an entire group of people leads you to believe that they are all morons. It's a good idea to examine your own beliefs because it's much more likely that you have constructed a straw man. Half of the population is not stupid, and I stand by that. It's easy to get fooled, though, and it's easy to have a double think. Republicans have become a white rural Christian voting bloc. Their traditional way of life is changing. Automation and industrialization of farming practices means fewer farmers are needed to feed the country. Traditional labor-intensive practices are no longer competitive. It may seem traumatic that ways of life are changing with the times, but that's not the fault of the immigrants. They aren't taking your jobs. They aren't the cause of this problem. And remember, it's nowhere near as bad as what the Native Americans experienced 200 years ago when your forefathers came to this land and killed them. You get to keep your land and your religion and your language. 
Christians are afraid of losing their religious majority due to the fact that Muslims and other religions seem to dominate amongst immigrant populations. And people are making laws that allow these people to live alongside Christians. Why is this a problem? Nobody is saying Christians can't practice their religion. The problem, I think, is that they are encountering resistance when they attempt to force religious dogma into science classes and force their authority into other people's bedrooms, their choice of partner, and their reproductive choices. In the past, there were no voices of dissent. Everyone was the same. We were all Christians, all together, and we could pass the laws that we wanted, and nobody would complain. There were The voices of dissent were silenced because there were so few of them. Well, now there are, you know, 25% of the population uh, is not Christian. And it makes a lot more noise when you push on them. When your iconography is on the currency and in the courthouses of the land, you do have something of an advantage. And it's daunting to those with other viewpoints to come into this area and be told that your views are wrong. Your religion is wrong. I remember back in the 1980s when they changed the Canadian national anthem and they added the words, God keep our land glorious and free. And even as a child, I thought, wow, that's mean to non-Christian Canadians. I just learned that, you know, we have... Uh, a separation of church and state in this country. Why would a society that claims to hold to this principle of separation do such a thing? Why would you feel the need to rub your dominance in the faces of those who didn't share your views? Why would you make these people feel unwelcome in their own country? Just because they're a minority doesn't mean you should be forcing this down their throats. Why do people feel the need to break down those with different views and make their lives miserable? Now, I know people on the right don't feel this is what they're doing. In fact, Rush Limbaugh, the far-right radio show host who was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for defending the Constitution by, by Donald Trump, has said, The way liberals are interpreting the First Amendment today is that it prevents anyone who is religious from being in government. And people believe this stuff. They don't think about this being over-the-top rhetoric because they are fearful. I mean, clearly, there has never been a president of the United States who did not at least pay lip service to being a Christian. And if you believe an atheist could get elected in the U.S., you, you are not being honest. And I think... It's a slippery slope to start um, pushing religion into the laws of the land and trying to break down the barriers between church and state. Harry A. Blackman said, When the government puts its imprimatur on a particular religion, it conveys a message of exclusion to all those who do not adhere to the favored beliefs. A government cannot be premised on the belief that all persons are created equal when it asserts that God prefers some. And in fact, I think what is needed in society right now is an open discussion about social morality that is not based on argument from authority or the Christian conservative interpretation of the Bible. 
Now, many among you would argue that the Bible provides uh, a solid and unchanging morality, and without that we can't come to an agreement on morality. And this is demonstrably not true. The Bible has been used in the past as an argument for slavery. It's been used as an argument against women's suffrage. In the past, people using the Bible as a source of moral authority are mainly trying to exert their power over others and are putting their own interpretation forward as though it has the weight of the Word of God behind it. But as we can see in our changing views on slavery and women's rights, that these interpretations are not absolute and for all time. And we should be able to agree that this one religion's book is not a mutually acceptable basis for discussion of laws in a cosmopolitan society where many people do not accept the authority of the Bible. And this is why separation of church and state is important. And many folks will tell you that the U.S. and Canada were built on Christian values and Christian traditions, and we need to enshrine these values in laws that affect Christian and non-Christian alike. But there were people here before the Christians, and there are new people that have come in that are not Christian as well. Why don't we base this discussion on terms of reference that everyone can agree on, like the impact of one's actions or the consequences of one's actions on other people? These things I think we could all agree on and come away with uh, a set of laws that are not just based on preferred biblical interpretation of whoever is currently in power. Now, you might think that we are highly enlightened in this modern era and that the founders of our current uh, political structures and countries were not smart and as smart as we are. But people who are not aware of history are doomed to repeat it, as they say. And the founders were smart enough to know that religious freedom can only happen if church and state are separate. If the government has is given the right to enforce religious values, then you have theocracy. And it's great if your religion is the one being enforced, but not so good if you are in the religion that is no longer the majority. And this is going to be the case uh, if trends and demographics continue. So I give a warning to those on the right trying to promote their religion into law that you're opening up a can of worms uh, that you may not like the results of. You recall the U.S. was founded by Quakers freeing religious persecution from the U.K. on the Mayflower. And they were well aware of the hazards of state-supported religion. And this is very clear in the constitutional documents that were put forward. You can get some, some quotes from the U.S. Founding Fathers. For example, Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, said, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion. 
or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So this is the First Amendment of the Constitution, and it's a basis for what we have today. Uh, James Madison, uh, one of the founding fathers, said, The experience of the United States is a happy disproof of the error so long rooted in the unenlightened minds of well-meaning Christians, as well as in the corrupt hearts of persecuting usurpers, that without a legal incorporation of religious and civil polity, neither could be supported. A mutual independence is found most friendly to practical religion, to social harmony, and to political prosperity. And he also said, The purpose of separation of church and state is to keep forever from these shores the ceaseless strife that has soaked the soil of Europe in blood for centuries. Now that's a very wise statement, uh, and I think people today should listen to it. Thomas Paine said, Persecution is not an original feature in any religion, but it is always the strongly marked feature of all law religions or religions established by law. Take away the law establishment and every religion reassumes its original benignity. And then if you want to go to a more modern philosopher, Christopher Hitchens said, How dismal it is to see present-day Americans yearning for the very orthodoxy that their country was founded to escape. Again, this theme of, if you don't know the past, you're doomed to repeat it. So yes, I agree that it makes people maudlin to see their traditional lifestyle change due to technological progress. I share their angst. I have been through it. On the other hand, I feel little sympathy for the loss of this ability to morally subjugate the minority. I feel little sympathy for those who are put out by the Emancipation Proclamation. I feel little sympathy for those who were distraught when women got the vote. I feel little sympathy for those who struggle with equal rights for the LGBTQ community. Many of these changes have made the country a much better place than it ever was. The country is changing and the demographics are becoming less white and more cosmopolitan. If you believe in democracy, then you have to allow the majority to have a say in the government, and you have to give them their chance to, to rule. If instead you try to suppress their democratic rights uh, by gerrymandering and making it more difficult to vote in ethnic neighborhoods and pushing the limits of democracy and saying that you will not allow a black man to pass bills or nominate judges, then you are taking the first steps into fascism and autocracy and it is very difficult to distinguish this behavior from racism. Now, I don't understand why people support Donald Trump, because I've gotten over this fear, and I've learned there are good things on the other side of it. But I think a lot of people are still stuck in their echo chambers. And Lyndon Johnson was once asked why poor white Republicans repeatedly vote against their best interests. And this was his response. If you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't know you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him someone to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. But you know what? These immigrants, they don't want to destroy America. These people don't want to close churches. 
They just want to live their lives and raise their children in a land of opportunity and peace. Despite the xenophobic rhetoric, the immigrants are usually the most law-abiding people and hard-working. And I think we all have to keep this in mind as we're discussing the politics of our countries going forward and how we deal with this massive overturning of the demographics that we've grown up with and the massive changes that this is causing to our society and how can we live together in peace and prosperity and not how to attack each other and keep each other down. We all should have a voice in our government and we should believe that we're all working to make this place great again. Thank you for listening to The Rational View. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.